This episode is supported by Sidetracked Magazine and sponsored by Valen Eyewear. This episode's guest is Aaron Rolfe. He is the founder of the British Adventure Collective and an adventurer of land and sea. We get into such fantastic chats uh, in this one, talking about his experience in the mountains, his experience kayaking. He recently released a film called The Great Escape, which is documenting this wonderfully long journey from Land's End to the top of the UK, just doing so much adventure the whole way up. Really fantastic guy who's just so positive and experienced and really just bloody modest. (laughs) Like, so chilled out about everything. But before we get into the interview, let me remind you that this episode is sponsored by Valen Eyewear. Now, if you didn't check them out in the last episode, go and check them out now because they are doing a site-wide 25% discount for Black Friday. So go and check out all of their uh, all of their products. If you like hiking, surfing, snowboarding, sur- uh, skiing, <laughs> go and check them out. Even Or if you just simply want to protect your eyes from the sun. Brilliant company, stylish, good quality, highly recommend them. And hey, while you're waiting for your adventure to start, you might want to read something in your snazzy eyewear, so why don't you go and check out Sidetracked Magazine as well. Go and have a look at them. They are this beautiful company, just stunning imagery, wonderful tales of adventure. I mean, what more could you want? It's right up your street. So why don't you go over there and with the money you've saved, from Valen Eyewear, you can get yourself a three-issue subscription, or if you just want to keep hold of that uh, that discount you saved, just sign up to the free weekly newsletter journal. And if you're coming to this podcast from the journal, hello, welcome, and thank you very much for coming along. But after all of that, here is Aaron Rolf from the British Adventure Collective. I hope you enjoy it. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, thank, was, it's absolutely my pleasure. And it's always a bit weird asking that question when you've had a 20-minute conversation before in record. Um, yeah, yeah. You already know how I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, it's been... Uh, That's not from stalking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've just actually come back from the Pyrenees um, recently. So I've just been on a cycle trip and just, yeah, touching base on some emails and prep and proposals and all that kind of admin in the, in the behind the scenes. Yeah, and I suppose that's quite an important thing that I probably would have mentioned um, if Future Chris does a good enough job um, on the introduction to, to the podcast, which is that you really are an adventure adventurer of of land and sea because you've you've just got back from the Pyrenees. But when we were trying to organise uh, a recording date at first, you were just about to head out to the Highlands to do a big kayaking trip as well. Like, could you tell us a bit more about that? How did that go? Yeah, it went uh, well. It, it didn't go to plan, but in the best of ways, I suppose. Uh, so, <laughs> type two way. Yeah, we were initially going to do the um, sort of sea kayaking trail uh, in Argyle. So it's like a hundred and fifty k kind of fairly well known route, which is something I've been looking to do for a while. But the weather, as is common with sea kayaking, it comes with a lot of complexities with tides and um, obviously wind patterns and the rest of it. It kind of threw a spanner in the work. So we ended up doing something else in the end and. Did some, well, basically explored some islands around Jura and a couple of uninhabited islands, um, which, yeah, in, in Scotland, which was just amazing experience. And we just saw so much wildlife. It was unreal. It was like a safari, a Scottish safari on, on a boat. 
Amazing. Yeah, not two words that you'd usually put together. <laughs> no lion, but it was pretty good all the same. Otters, which is great. So I, I wanted to kind of dive right back to the beginning for you because you've been fortunate to have an up, upbringing that most people who get into adventure sort of wish they had, which is uh, growing up in the Lake District. So as a kid growing up there, what did adventure look like to you? What specifically did you do that was adventure? Yeah, super, super lucky and fortunate to have grown up in Cumbria uh, in the North Lakes. So I'm sure, yeah, lots of people would have visited the lakes and it was an amazing place to grow up. Um, summers were really busy with tourists, so there was, there was downsides. Um, not that tourists aren't very welcome, of course. But the, yeah, the off seasons, the winters, and it was just amazing and loads of space to run around. So, yeah, for me, I was probably mainly into hiking from an early age. I think I did. I got dragged around some of the Langdale Pikes from, I think, age three or four I was when I first started. <laughs> Not that I didn't think I really had a choice in the matter, but I did I did enjoy it uh, some of the days, at least. Um, and then, yeah, just as I got older, sort of got more into other disciplines, other sports, um, biking, um, probably did a bit more running and, and obviously having that sort of playground of the lakes to practice in. And there's not a lot else to do in Cumbria other than outdoor stuff. So <laughs> it was a natural progression or direction for me to, to go, I suppose. Yeah, it's funny hearing you talk about hiking when you're three, because I think uh, sort of uh, more regular listeners of this show will will know that I've ta- I'm taking my daughter out hiking. Um, she's just turned six, so we've got Ben Nevis on the list now. But when she was five, she did Penavan, um, Snowden, Scarpel Pike, and the amount of times. Like, it's not a huge, it's not a disgusting amount of times, but the amount of times we're going up. And she goes, can you carry me? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> you used to be able to when she was four, maybe, but not six. She's well, no, like, like, I think it's just always a rule because she'll, she'll look back. And, and she'll be glad that I didn't pick her up, that she can say, I, I walked up that mountain by myself. I'll carry her down. Like, well, I don't mind doing that. Like, yeah. But she, she gets up on her own feet. <laughs> good. That's so good. Could you, could you, is that service available for other people as well? Can you carry me down from people? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, for, for, for a brew, I will, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, but something else that, that is so uh, kind of apparent is, and it's brought to light in the Great Escape film, which um by accident i kind of mentioned a lot on this podcast so so people will just go watch it but yeah the great escape film they talk about your positivity and from everything i can see and from our chat before you have this contagious positivity and like would you say that comes from having that upbringing in the lake district or is that just something something else that you've got about you uh, good question yeah i think maybe from the lakes sort of being able to I guess resilience was was a sort of skill set that was drawn in very early I had no choice um, like some of the winter days we used to go out in the in the fells in you know the dead of winter you know traipsing through snow not with crampons and not with probably the warmest boots so kind of taught to yeah be resilient um optimism maybe yeah maybe that's part of it I don't know how to pinpoint but certainly I, I like to be you know enthusiastic and optimistic about all all the adventures and go with a smile on the face and when it gets tougher you know you can't change it so you may as well just grin and bear but <laughs> grin being the operative term yeah I mean but you've hit the nail on the head there and there's something we talked about as well before which is just where you have it's almost like you have two parallel lines and that the top line is reality and that is unchanging so I know it's raining there's nothing you can do it is raining and the second one is your perception and how you're going to deal with that are you going to moan and whinge and get really upset and then not carry on cycling and get to where you need to go because you want to get shelter or you're just going to like, laugh <laughs> yeah, totally and you just got to smile and crack on haven't you 
I don't I mean, we're lucky in the UK weather for all sometimes you do get really tough conditions uh that belong for the most part you don't tend to get terrible conditions sustained they usually you know you might get a bad day or half a day but you, the weather's so changeable in our country isn't it you know you, you just get everything in one day so you know chances are will improve and you'll go through the other side and obviously when things do come good it feels so much better it tastes so much better doesn't it when the sun does come out and you've uh, put yourself through some tough some tough stuff yeah, it just tastes sweeter, doesn't it? When <laughs> when when that day comes. Although I haven't done any uh, multi camping days, but I can imagine if you went if you went two days of rain and then the third day is just bliss, that'd be a well yeah, I mean, time. So for the Great Escape, we ended up. It was just a really bad period of weather. I don't know if anyone remembers earlier this summer. Um, well, at like the very beginning of summer, we just had this really cold spell that and completely different to last year, wasn't it? Yeah totally different so it was during that period um if anyone does remember yeah and sort of had about six days back to back of just heavy rain every single day and you know obviously it wasn't perfect but you just got to crack on and, and kind of find some rhythm in an enjoyment in a different sense but when when the weather did come good and it really came great um then it just was so much nicer you know you feel we feel invincible once you've been through six days of totally crap weather <laughs> yeah but i mean very similar to mental health as well though isn't it like that that metaphor can go to quite a lot which is just it's just so much sweeter when that good moment comes and it's just like even bigger smiles <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you know I, I was researching this um this podcast and something i really liked what you said in an interview was it's a waste of time taking a direct route yeah <laughs> which uh, i thought was a really kind of nice juxtaposition <laughs> yeah, yeah really <laughs> Completely like, there, but like do you do you think you're are you the kind of guy to go out and back and and sort of enjoy having the view on the way back to the start point or do you take a, a much larger loop do you think yeah I, I psychologically always had a thing for a to b routes for sure first of all so if it's if i can do a journey that starts somewhere and ends somewhere else then that's the, the winner for sure hmm. it just feels like you've got an objective a clear difference and then an end goal that is totally different from when you started in a really obvious sense but um so yeah probably would choose an a to b route rather than a loop but then yeah i mean for the great escape it, it just seems so crazy to go to travel such a distance put so much physical effort into going up the full length of the country in a land center john groats or similar and not actually utilize and see so many amazing places along the way. It just felt like a yeah inefficiency to to put all that physical effort in and not and not get the benefits. And for me, the I mean, I'm, and so many of your listeners, and I'm sure yourself as well. You know, the the views and the landscapes, the places you experience along the way, are what drives you. I I'm not an endurance athlete by trade. I don't enjoy suffering per se. I'm not a sadist like so many endurance athletes are, <laughs> um, but I can motivate myself enough by the views and the, the places you travel through to, to put myself through those, those tougher days and weeks. Yeah. Cause if, if it was easy to do it, then everyone would do it. And, and I refer you back to your previous comment about tourism on, on some of the routes in the Lake District. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, that approach to landscape though is really really clear in those films uh for the british adventure collective like project 282 and the great escape like those shots where it's just these beautiful mountainscapes and then you look a bit closer and there's this tiny dot which is you or someone just walking along a ridge it's just it's really powerful great that that sort of yeah i guess a big part of the visuals that we're really you know proud of and and chasing is trying to convey that feeling of being small in a huge landscape which it, it does help that Scotland is so it makes it easy sometimes when Scotland's doing its thing, you know, and, and it feels so grand 
and so epic and you feel so small and that's that that feeling you know is one that we all chase at the weekend or mm. what we're all after and i guess the, the films were yeah trying to convey that as best we could yeah absolutely and actually thinking more about the the british adventure collective you, you are the the founder of it and it got me thinking watching those films watching the amount of work you put into it watching the kind of the endurance athlete stuff that we were talking about before we hit record and and really thinking what is it that drove you to create it and what drives you to carry on with it the british adventure collective yeah so i mean the main uh, focus has always been trying to sort of a showcase i guess the best wild spaces we have in the uk and to me it was always i mean just growing up in the lakes and you know so lucky to do that coming from cumbria it amazed me how few people particularly in the south in understood how amazing some of the spaces in the uk actually are and the number of times people would say to me after going for a trip i had no idea the uk could look like that or i had no idea this was in the uk and it just got you know just built up and built up and eventually i was like you know, we've got to show we're going to show people how incredible some of the places are and the, the diversity of landscapes and adventures you can have on the uk and we have such a strong holiday abroad culture everybody you know you're far more likely to go to mallorca than you are muckle flugger which is where we ended the trip that's what i said for the day but um you know so, so it just seems crazy that we're, we're all flying all over the world and, and over europe and actually so few people actually go and see you know, the amazing spots that you can do in, in the UK. Yeah, and I, I, I remember the first time I drove to the Highlands and, and I just remember thinking, I, I thought you had to drive to Europe, mainland Europe, to get roads like like I was driving on. Was it the Glencoe Road? That yeah, is- yeah, it was, yeah, because we're, we're going to do, it was actually, um, uh, I, I won't go into the story, but it was Storm Kira um, just about to start and we were still going to go up and do Ben Nevis. So it was snow-capped mountains, kind of more more dramatic weather. And, uh, and yeah, that Glencoe Road is just uh, just nuts. I just I had no idea you could get that in the UK. Uh, di- I mean, did you have a similar moment the first time you went to Scotland or yeah. do you not remember it? No, no, I definitely remember. And, and even though, you know, Cumbria is relatively close to the Scottish border, it's probably 20 minutes from Scotland. So we we actually went to the borders a lot, uh, particularly the Seven Stains for mountain biking and, and loads of areas like that. But yeah, going to the Highlands is also, it's a totally different thing again, isn't it? Um, the true sort of wilderness and the rugged nature of the highlands is just like nothing else and yeah i remember distinctly the first time uh, going up I remember finishing work i used to work as an outdoor instructor with my friend ed who you'll see quite a lot of on various adventures he's a key member um and yeah i remember we finished work and went and did the three peaks not really understanding quite what was involved just the two of us ad hoc last minute and um, jumped in the car after a 10 hour shift which is probably not the best way to start the three peaks but um, anyway, then, yeah, we we come through the Glencoe Road and just remember being just, yeah, breathtaking, isn't it? It's unreal. It's mad, yeah. And as soon as you get realise that, and then the more you explore the highlands, the more you realise that Glencoe is, you know, a great spot, but there are countless spots, you know, similar and just like it. Um, and, yeah, there's just so many different areas to explore. It's never-ending. It's a lifetime of work just exploring Scotland alone, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're a photographer though. So you'll, you'll hopefully you can give me some insight or, or maybe even just back me up on this, but I, I did a, um, uh, my partner and I, we, we were in Dundee and we decided that one of the days we were up there, we were going to drive around the highlands and kind of, kind of like not the, um, not the, uh, route 500, the, yeah. uh, the, the, what the grand tour did the, um, what the, the, the penis 287 or something is <laughs> what they called it. Um, but we cut through basically and I took the road too early cutting through, but either way, it was just absolutely stunning. 15 hours of driving around the Highlands and back to Dundee. 
and 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 what blew me away was the landscape and specifically the fact i could not capture on my camera how beautiful it was i was trying to take photos i was just like not like i wasn't exactly frustrated but i was i was at a loss at how i couldn't or struggling to capture it. i mean do you do you get the same the same feeling i know the feeling yeah 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 um i think because it's so expansive and perhaps it's not dramatic in the sense of altitude because obviously nothing in Scotland's over, you know, 1,400 metres or barely. Um, so in terms of you compare that to the Alps and it perhaps doesn't feel inherently dramatic, but it just goes on and on. And, you know, when you climb a summit and you look around, you can quite often invariably see, you could probably count 20 to 25 Munros from some of the peaks. So, you know, it just feels like it goes on forever, doesn't it? Um, and the sort of fjord style locks as well. The sea logs. Um, no, I know they're feeling well. I think there's something to do with perhaps the lack of height contrast. So it feels like you can't do it justice. A wide angle shot feels like it doesn't show the depth and height. A closer in shot, you know, on shot in a telephoto lens doesn't show you how expansive and huge the area is. So you're sort of always in this middle ground. That's the danger, isn't it? You know, you've, I, I certainly spend a lot of my time fixating on trying to do an area justice and you know, shoot it in the best way possible. And then sometimes you realise, so especially if it's golden hour and you've got maybe one hour of light and that light's gone and you're like, did I actually see it with my own eyes? Did I fully enjoy that moment as much as I should have? But- yeah, balance, isn't it? But we, we were talking about that um, before we started. And that's, uh, I did I did mention I'd bring it up if, if I could, which is actually something we talked about on the podcast quite a lot is uh, the balance between uh, living in the moment and capturing the moment, which is what we just discussed. But then also sort of delving back into that mindset topic we touched upon is is find the balance between riding the wave and then when you do stop to either get some photos or have a break making sure you don't stop for too long <laughs> that that wave just like loses momentum yeah and so much about momentum sometimes you've got to i think especially if you're enduring and pushing against a tough time if you're really tired sometimes you've got to push through just as efficiently and quickly and try and keep that momentum moving forward and sometimes when things are good yeah, you don't want to break up that moment and stopping. And especially doing different disciplines. If you're skiing, if you're doing anything gravity-based, skiing and biking, the it takes a lot of will to stop when you're going downhill and get off a bike, take a shot or set up a shot or whatever it is. So it's even harder, you know, whereas at least if you're hiking, that you don't lose physical time and effort um, by doing that. But And then also if you're, if you're doing endurance sport where you're pushing yourself physically, your heart rate gets to this point where you're starting to find a rhythm you know, your body's tolerating the pain and the, the challenge. And then as soon as you stop for, for three minutes, your heart rate drops and then you have to reset and get back to where you were mentally and physically. Yes. Yeah. It's always a tough one. I'm, yeah, but I find it particularly difficult, especially if I'm shooting really fit athletes. Obviously, I have to not only keep up with them, but I've ideally got to be ahead of them and behind them and running rings around them <laughs> to try and, you know, get the best shots possible and not interfere with the rhythm of the day or, the, or what it is we're doing. Yeah, and actually an episode that's yet to come out um, at the time of recording, it will be out by the time this is out, is um, is I chat with a guy called Kevin Merry, who's um, part of Skyrise Productions, and he was talking about the exact same thing, which is that it takes it actually takes quite a lot of time to film someone else, especially if they're really good, because because you can set up a position, they're there, you take the shot, and oftentimes, especially if you've got a drone, by the time you've packed up and you're moving again, they could be half an hour ahead of you. Um, just with the amount that they're they're powering ahead of you, so so yeah, it, it's, it's a tough job. <laughs> yeah, I think films will be even yeah even tougher, even faffier. 
filmmaking uh, photography is obviously a little bit quicker and you do obviously learn to sort of get to that shot and do the stages to get to where you need to be a little bit quicker more efficient on those adventures which is yeah in everyone's benefit if you can keep moving swiftly yeah and then kind of moving swiftly is kind of a decent segue to this next question but uh, about uh mindset again on the great escape you uh were were cruising along quite happily and then you got quite badly injured <laughs> um yeah s- still still bloody laughing <laughs> about it like lying <laughs> down it's like oh whoops <laughs> um, yeah it was a tough day that <laughs> i want to ask so for those who don't know what was it that went wrong and then mindset wise how did you deal with those few months where you were out of commission and just you 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 not only weren't you, it's not like you weren't choosing to go out on an adventure you couldn't and, and i think everyone knows that 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 makes it feel worse when you're not allowed to like, yeah. how did you get through those few months yeah it's tough i mean the the day itself so yeah i'll start with the incident i suppose so i was hitting a downhill mountain bike track uh, as a part of our great escape project which the whole idea is to connect uh, a multitude of adventures and activities all up and down the uk just connecting them sort of by a road trip on a bike um so yeah downhill mountain biking at bike park wales seemed like a really good spot um i got a bit overexcited and decided to have a go at the sort of pro line uh, big jumps and i'd done a couple of warm-up laps on the few jumps before and then hit this big tabletop um which i think was like 40 foot long maybe so not a small jump um and then just came up just probably the worst possible place so i didn't over jump i didn't come short by a lot I went as high as I could as far as I could but still managed to come up short by just you know an inch um so I sort of got bucked um and then hit the landing of the next jump and in the process I actually fell onto the bike which had come in front of me and managed the, well the blunt trauma from the saddle um severed my colon in half um the, the surgeon, so later that, obviously that night in emergency surgery or the day after, he came to me, he's like, he was amazed. He said it was like someone had done it with a scalpel. It was such a clean cut. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he was quite impressed. Um, You're just trying to make it convenient for the surgeons. <laughs> yeah, just keeping it clean. There. Well, it probably wasn't very clean, actually, thinking about it. <laughs> um, anyway, sorry to go back to your question. Yeah, so then there was a, a long haul of, of waiting for the ambulance and, prepping for surgery and all the rest of it and then eventually put me to sleep and I woke up and I instantly just felt so much better you know just knew although there'd been some serious surgery just knew everything felt like it roughly should be again and um and then it was just yeah long haul of I think it was eight weeks I was sort of walking walking doing gentle hikes after maybe four weeks um and then eight weeks I got on the bike gently but with those too soon it, it did hurt the Stomach. They they basically perform midline surgery, so probably quite a lot like a cesarean probably would be, mm-hmm. um, but the other way around. It was the length of my stomach, yeah, uh, not to, the width, not the width exactly to fix it all. Um, and then yeah, I mean, having never been in a hospital and never had an injury for thirty two years or thirty one years up until this point, it took a a bit of adjusting on the recovery. But it doesn't sound like it's too bad then if you were still able to do something. Yeah, it was it was a good recovery. Um, and now I'm obviously fully fit again, which is very fortunate. You know, if I'd broken a bone or done a ligament, I might have had more long-term, uh, you know, consequences than yeah. severing an organ, as it turned out. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. not really something you expect to hear, which is like sort of 
like sort of implying you'd rather sever an organ than a bone or tendon. I mean, it'd be tough to have told me on the day that, but yeah, um, <laughs> you know, probably was. Um, and yeah, just I, I was really fortunate. We, I basically couldn't really face being in London, stuck in the flat. It felt like a re- it was going to be really defeating for me. Um, and we escaped to France very quickly. <laughs> so I spent the recovery period in near Chamonix. Um, yeah in some sunshine, some French sun. Um, and actually it was such a good thing for me. Just, you know, being able to go for gentle strolls and just being out in the mountains already and not stuck in a city, not being able to move. Um, it was, yeah, great, great way to recover. And it didn't feel too long, you know, a couple of months. It was, it was long enough, but I knew I was making quick progress and these staples keeping my stomach together were quite sort of fragile. So I had to be careful with those. So it was quite obvious to be, you know, look after myself. And then once the staples were out and it started healing better, I was able to do a little bit of gentle swimming and, and other stuff. So nice. Perfect. So that doesn't sound like it was too much of a uh, an absolute issue. <laughs> no, yeah. T- tough day. One very, very bad day. And then after that, um as far as injuries go, that's quite quite smooth sailing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, but no, it's all right. <laughs> no, don't add it into your your week away. No. <laughs> I mean, so now that you talk about being in the Alps there, that's another decent segue, so thank you. Um, you know, looking at your adventure CV, it, it is something to admire, like massively. You've got all these fantastic achievements. And one of the things you did was the Houts route nonstop. I think you called it No Sleep Till Zermatt, I think. Yeah. Um, but for those who don't know, and uh, given our previous conversation for me who can't remember, yeah, what is the Houts route? And what was it that made you think oh, I'm just going to do it non-stop? Yeah, so the hurry is a uh, ski tour. Well, what was originally actually a mountaineering traverse done by some Brits in I think it was as early as like the well, 1800s or thereabouts, late 1800s or early 1900s. Um, and it was yeah, this route from two iconic ski towns from Chamonix, um, which was yeah pretty historic, all the way through to Zermatt, which again was another historic town of that era. Um, and they worked out they could do this high level, high altitude. So oh, it just means high in French. Uh, it's a high altitude traverse from one to the other. And you just, just stay at a high altitude the whole way. And since, I guess, maybe more in the last 30 years, well, 20, 30 years, it's become a popular ski tour uh, destination. And I did it with some friends over a week, um, which is like the standard format. Uh, three years ago, I think it was four years ago, maybe. Um, yeah, and then just something about, I'd heard a British... Uh, mountain guide had managed to achieve it in one push and there was just something really exciting about the prospect of setting off from Chamonix 130 kilometers from Zermatt and just being like right I'm going until until I make it to Zermatt whatever that takes now and then being fortunate enough to have gone out for the winter and for the the season I'd done loads of ski touring and it just felt like there was the opportunity it was the time to to go for it so in April uh, this year yeah I um I went for it and uh, no one had actually done the verbier variant of the route which is the most popular route um before so I think it made sense to do do the new one um that people hadn't done so yeah and then um set off and it took 31 hours all in so it was a long day um but it, I enjoyed I enjoyed most of it to be honest as in I thought it was going to be you know more painful and more suffering than perhaps it was I'd I loved it. I felt like I was thriving. Um, my only big concern was just doing it solo. Um, uh, it was obviously 
the the safety element was obviously a little bit of risk there but i've had some supports from a couple of good friends mark and katie who sort of drove to pit periods and met me along the way and and gave me some food and stuff so that was a big help yeah and good check-ins because that's that's a good question actually like what, what you did to mitigate the risk of of not only doing something solo at high, at high altitude but also non-stop so the because i mean i mean it's a little bit different from pulling an all-nighter because of a desk desk job right you know it's you're yeah. exerting your body quite a lot and so big smile on your face but you know things can go wrong when you're, you're getting absolutely knackered so yeah yeah i mean so i did a so i knew half of the route already which helped um and then the other half that i wasn't sure of it when actually sort of learned the route and did a did a bit of a recce with a friend um and got to know it a little bit more which which really picked up my confidence you know knowing obviously the reality of navigating at night particularly when you're tired in pitch black in the mountains um it's quite serious and you can't be taking any wrong turns especially when you're by yourself um so yeah just kind of feeling like i knew the region was a good start and then um had some tracking had lots of garmin live tracker on so people could follow which was good and also had an sos device if anything had gone really wrong um so just had like a little in reach with an sos button and then as far as i understand it although i've never tested it um then that would go to you know a call center somewhere in the states who would then um implement some kind of rescue based yeah. on our, my gps location i think anna blackwell had to use it once uh, when she went um into into sweden yeah because uh, the weather just rolled in quite epically <laughs> so um it's, it's yeah. good to know that it does work because uh, you do wonder Thank you, Anna. <laughs> Just testing that one out for us. Yeah. <laughs> but also on the Adventure CB as well is, is this um, El- Elbrus climb that you did. And I noticed that it said attempt on there. Uh, I didn't know, is there, a, is there a story behind that at all? And, and are you planning on going back? or Definitely going back, yeah. Um, probably s- next year, I hope, is the plan. Um, but yeah, so we just were, I mean, Elbrus is notoriously changeable weather, even for mountains, you know, obviously alpinism and mountaineering comes with the risk of changeable weather. That's just part and parcel of it. But, uh, Elbrus just seems to get these massive storms and we just went too early in the season and we got, um, yeah, stormed out three times and we did three summit bids, um, in our sort of naive optimism and of youth. Cause it was a few years ago, probably four, four or five years ago, maybe. And we even, so the, the, we were running out of time, our, you know, eight days that we had on the mountain was coming to an end. And it, we had one final window and it looked like it was going to be clear until sort of midday the following day. <clears throat> then with the friends, we, I said, hey, this is our last chance. We've just got to go. So it's, it's like 7 or 8 p.m. at night. And we think we've got the window, but it's at night. We'll just have to go for it anyway. So we set off at, yeah, probably sunset and started going through the night. We made it to about 5,000 metres, and then the storm comes early. <laughs> um, it was just terrible spin drift, freezing cold. I was feeling altitude sick. Scotty, who I think you've had on the podcast before, um, she was like fully hypothermic, shivering, not with it. Um, so we had to call it. And then this electrical storm starts coming in. So, And I've got skis on my back, and Paul does as well, so we're skiing and snowboarding. We were walking up on Elbrus while these lightnings coming down, thinking I've just got a big antenna on my back. Basically, need to get out of here ASAP. Um, and then, yeah, I managed to get out and it was fine. But yeah, you know, I guess it was a humbling experience. A learning to turn back and say, you know, it's not not our day, not our week. Um, and also just realizing that such changeable conditions out in the mountain like that, you know, there's nothing you can really do if the weather comes in like that. 
Yeah, and it's not going anywhere either, either is it? That the mountain's going to still be there. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, most definitely. So you got to make sure you will be as well. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're there for it. Take tea. I think I'm going to do a slightly different twist on it um, when I come back. Um, I'll keep it secret for now. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask. Um, I, I won't ask uh, just in case, just in case through rule of elimination, it helps you with the answer. So I'll keep it to the first question, which is back when you did Albrus that time. Did you do the north route or the south route? And I'm wondering if maybe did the south, if you got skis, it might have been the south route because you had the ski lifts there. Yeah, correct. The south route, yeah. And we went through, yeah, through Russia, which was just easier at the time for permissions as well. Um, and yeah, they've got quite good infrastructure. Well, I say good infrastructure. They've got some infrastructure. It's not good. It's very minimal. It's like shipping containers on the side of the mountain if anyone hasn't been to Albrus. <laughs> It's about as low standard as a refuge can be, uh, but it's you know a safe space to to get out of the conditions and the storm. Um, and yeah, for skiing, it's just a lot simpler ski direction. So just before we look, look to wrap up, um, I, I wanted to just sort of end it in the UK, really, because that's just where you put a lot of your focus, uh, and I think quite right, rightfully so as well, um, as well as the big bigger mountains in the Alps. Uh, and you've said that people underestimate the UK and we you know, we've even talked about it on the podcast so far. And you've explored pretty much the entirety of the UK, <laughs> it looks like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is there a specific moment or place that when you think about exploring the UK just comes to mind first? Yeah, I guess there's a trip. There's a trip that stands out and it kind of opened my eyes to the full sort of diversity of landscapes in Scotland and how amazing a space it can be. We headed out again just after work in Manchester, when I used to live in Manchester, we went bikepacking and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I took a giant rucksack with loads of camera equipment. It weighed so much and I was riding a, a full suspension mountain bike and we were doing long distances. So obviously that was not comfortable and yeah, it was a pretty painful experience. Anyway, there was a friend who was, he was on like a vintage bike, genuinely like an 80s vintage bike with a hard seat. Um, so yeah, very ill-prepared, but they, you know, it didn't stop us having a good time. And we, yeah, we went up to Inverness, got the sleeper and then traversed across to Chernobyl and it was March time. And we just had the most amazing conditions in March. It was like perfect spring. So you had, you know, white snow-capped peaks, but it was beautiful sunshine, you know, maybe 15, what felt like 15, 20 degrees just optimum adventure conditions and then we yeah went through these mountains had a night by ourselves in Chernobyl which is just an unbelievable space and it's their flagship Bothy so usually expected to be quite busy and it was just all to ourselves this whole valley us and the, the deer and then we carried on traversing and went on to the Outer Hebrides and I think it was maybe the mix of that with these big you know grand mountains like Antilach and and then going on to the Outer Hebrides with these white sands beaches that you just wouldn't think existed. That opened my whole eyes to, to what the UK had to offer or what Scotland has to offer, especially. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> that's where the idea for the British Adventure Collective came from, that trip. Perfect. That, that moment. That moment. Long, long moment. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, that four days long moment. <laughs> no, wow. it was three days. It was, a long, it was a normal long weekend with the bank holiday. Oh, um, wow. You've been absolutely kept like pegging it on the bike. Yeah, we we went for it despite the the weight, but it just shows you know there was no, we didn't take time off for that. We got the sleeper straight after work. You know you can do it in the in the weekends or on the micro adventures, and make the most of it. Yeah, man, we could do a whole other podcast on micro adventures. They're, yeah. they're, they're they're such a good thing and like the a good mentality to 
sort of absorb into your own life you know it, it like for so long i spent so many years just thinking oh i can't i can't you know i've got no time or how am i gonna get there uh and then uh my my current partner we, we met and then we were literally just like well let's just get in the car and go <laughs> <laughs> we went and did the Brecon Beacons. That was our first one. Like left left about three a.m. Um, I was drive driving along. Like, we had the f- morning fog on the fields that we were driving past. It's beautiful. When did Brecon Beacons? Slept in the car. Came back late Sunday. Like and perfect. That's, <laughs> you just need to sacrifice sleep, don't you? That's the solution. Yeah, yeah. You well, you'll get that get back. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. And then last question, and it may well be in the UK, but zooming out now to just absolutely everything you've done. If you could relive one moment, what moment would that be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it probably jumps out. Uh, went to Kyrgyzstan um, a few years back, went skiing, did lots of ski touring, um, stayed in yurts. It's an incredible place. They call it sort of the Switzerland of Central Asia, if anyone hasn't seen much of Kyrgyzstan. It's not quite as, uh, you know, running smoothly as Switzerland, but <laughs> it's an amazing country and the people are super friendly. Anyway, we um, went through to the ski resort that we called ahead. It's a very small resort and said, you know, we'd like to come visit. Are you open and blah, blah. And then we arrived and they said, oh, it's, we're not actually open today. The group who'd previously planned to come haven't come. So we can't afford to open the lifts, um, which was gutting because it was a perfect powder day. It's like two to three foot of fresh snow, really light powder glistening with sunshine. It was unbelievable. Anyway, so then we said to them, OK, how much? were they paying can we cover their cost it ended up being i think it was 100 pounds for two of us and they opened the resort privately so we had a private ski resort on this perfect bluebird day and just had the best day skiing i think i'll ever have um and funny enough i'm going back to Kyrgyzstan on friday this week um not winter but maybe i'll try and relive that experience yeah absolutely or seek out something similar that yeah. sounds incredible <laughs> that sounds like perfect and conversion rate really helped you out there as well. Yeah, for sure. You'd arrive to the lift station and then they'd just run it for you. And there was a few different lifts. They'd just be there. And then because the, the staff were just wanting to ride as well, they were keen snowboarders. So then they were lapping with us as well. It was just incredible experience. That's amazing. And, you know, you, you wouldn't get that experience unless you choose to ski in a place that's very off the beaten track. So, you know, if people do go skiing in the Alps and follow those normal resorts, maybe think differently and try Georgia or, or you know, you can think you can ski in Kosovo, you can ski in Kyrgyzstan, there's so many options out. I, I was going to say North Norway maybe, but that's um, getting popular and very expensive. Yeah, it's <laughs> pricey, the exchange rate doesn't help you in Norway, unfortunately. But we've done an episode of the Lingen Alps before and then they sound beautiful, but like similar moments to, to what you just described, which is just a bluebird, unusual location on your own. Like just the dream. Mad. Yeah. Well, listen, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a total pleasure having you on. Uh, and, and yeah, we'll bump into you soon. Yeah, great. Thanks, Chris.